So last week we talked about what it is going to be like for us in heaven as we are uh, heavenly beings and what it was lo- is going to look like as we are resurrected. And we emphasized, or at least I emphasized, and um, some of you nodded, uh, that uh, we will be resurrected. We will find ourselves in um, like, like Jesus. Jesus will not be the only person uh, with flesh. And we, we, we won't just be spirits floating around Jesus uh, with flesh. Although that's not the most asked question about heaven. Um, what is it like? That may, which that was the lesson last week, that may be the most asked. But for centuries, if you want to go back uh, into uh, for 2,000 years, the most asked question is, uh, where, where is heaven? It, cartographers, for the longest time, specifically before they figured out that cartographers need to be thinking in globe terms, back when they thought the earth was as flat as a map, uh, map makers were always trying to put heaven somewhere. And uh, they would put it over by India or try to put it. They knew the Garden of Eden existed, so they wanted to figure out whether it was it. It was on a river. We know that. And where? what river? And probably the Tigris or the Euphrates. And where? There's probably some distant land. Can we find the Garden of Eden? And people have been interested in that uh, all the time. And, and then we started talking about heaven being in the heavens. But, the, but if you read your Bible carefully, you're, you'll notice that sometimes they say, the he, they'll talk about heaven, but then also they'll talk about the heavens. See, so the way they understood heaven, and if you read Genesis 1 carefully, you'll see that they, they talk, he talks about there being like this, this mass. The way they understood the world was that the earth was flat, but the heavens were domed. And that that's where they held the waters above. And so sometimes the waters above would come down. But God was up there somewhere. And God would come to us. But there was a definite distinction between where God was and um, what he had created. And he had created this thing. um, And even in ancient mythology there was... Uh, there's a turtle taking the sun across. Uh, we're on the well. No, the Earth was on the back of a turtle, which makes you know so much sense. About as much sense as it's just hurling through space at millions of miles an hour. That's nuts too. Although we seem to have gotten a pretty good check image of that, but it's still crazy. Have you ever thought about that? That's what. That's really what gets me when I'm. When I've shot a shot and I've missed a shot in basketball or like in golf, you know, hit one in the woods, I'm on a rock that's hurling through space. It's no big deal. What I'm doing is really hard, traveling this fast, is what I think. But we don't, so we, we've, got, we've got the Hubble telescope, we've got all, we're, we're seeing 
light years away. We're seeing, catching these images that, that are beautiful and we're not finding God. So where exactly is it? There's a couple of places in Scripture where you should go to talk about A, what heaven is like, and B, to kind of describe the layout of heaven. What, what is it going to look like? Now, last week we kind of dealt, dealt with our own selves, but what is heaven going to look like? And that starts with, well, where in the world is it? One of the places you should not go is Luke chapter 16. But the time came when the beggar died. This is rich man and Lazarus. The beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, you notice the distinction there. Rich man gets buried. The, Lazarus just dies. Poor people don't get buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He, uh, and I skipped a question. He says, hey, he basically says, send Lazarus to get me some water. I skipped, skipped the passage. I skipped verse 24. Send Lazarus to get me some water. Verse 25 says, but Abraham applied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus reject, received bad things. But now he is comforted, comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go here from here to you cannot, I don't know who would choose that, nor can anyone cross over from here, from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. For some reason, for the past 50 years, we've been reading this and saying, okay, what exactly does this story tell us about heaven? Okay, there's a chasm we know. And we know that apparently we can have conversations. And we and so there's this there's this weird description that we're trying to process in uh, Luke chapter 16, and it, this that's not what he's doing here. Jesus did not start this story to say, "I tell you, listen, here's what heaven's going to be like. Here's what paradise is going to be like," which we'll get into the distinction in just a second. But here, here's what it's going to be like. No, he was trying to tell us about how rich people treat poor people matters. Jesus, when trying to make a serious and um, controversial point, never, uh, never delineates from popular thought about the setting of his story. Does, it, does everyone hear me correctly? So when Jesus wants to make a big point about rich people and poor people, he's not going to interrupt it by taking what the Jews knew about the end times and 
changing it to be factually accurate. Now, this may be factually accurate, but he's, he doesn't want to throw out too many new stuff or they'll be distracted from the main point of the parable like most of us usually are. The main point is that rich people are always trying to get the poor people to serve them and it's not the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of heaven. Lazarus, actually you notice, this is, just, this is for free, is still in Hades trying to get Abraham to get Lazarus to serve him. Lazarus, bring me water. Lazarus, send Lazarus to do what I want him to do. The rich man mistreated the poor. That's the point of that story. There's nothing else. We shouldn't pick apart the bones of stories and examine them because Jesus needed to use the bones that they all knew. We, we don't need to... You might can find some things in Luke 16, but I, I, I would say make sure you test those things against the other things the Bible specifically says about that. Because that wasn't Jesus' goal here. Another one. Is John 14, and I should have had the King James up here to show you why it's so crazy. But I don't. This is either the NIV or the NRSV. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house. In my Father's house has many rooms. That's the NIV. NRSV says many dwelling places. In my father's house has many. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Now, for the longest time, this verse was only translated: "In my father's house there are many mansions." You know, because the Greeks had a word for that. This, this Greek word is just rooms. It's, may, it's meant to designate this is a room. Just like this Greek word would. And in this, in this building, we have many rooms. But secondly, what Jesus is doing here is promising them... That they are in covenant with him and he will return. This passage here, uh, do not let, uh, you believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. And then starting in verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. This is a common Wedding proposal. This was predominantly the way young Jewish boys proposed to young Jewish girls. That's the way the whole wedding started. Is you, you, they would have a feast. The, the families would kind of get together. They would, have, they would decide who gets to pay what and what's, who, how much will the, will the bride cost. 
They didn't say it in such harsh terms, but that's basically what was happening. And then the, the young man would say, nervously and shaking, a, a tremble in his voice, he would re- recite this, because this is what he was actually going to go do. It was his job, from here on out, to go back to his father's place and prepare a place for him and his spouse. And so he would go and he would prepare this place, and it was not up to him when he would come back. The father would oversee the preparing of the place and make sure it was sufficient. I mean, you've got this, you know, if they had to add on a room to the place, you've got this a little off-centered, a little off-kilter, let's straighten this up, let's make this area bigger. Well, however it is that they were putting, making this place ready for their marriage, so only the father knows when the son is going to return for his bride. And then once it, all, it was all done, that's why a lot of the parables, they're just waiting in a room for the bride, for the groom to come. You didn't really know, you didn't say, be there at two, RSVP, steak or chicken. You said... Listen, if that's the case, chicken. No, steak. I changed my mind, steak. But you waited. You waited. And so what Jesus here is doing is saying something to them that they commonly understood as, um, as a, you know, commonly understood as a, as a promise of one guy going and preparing and then coming and returning. And then John... This is from John. John in Revelation uses the same term later for Jesus. The bridegroom comes for the bride. So this isn't... When we look at this and we say, okay, let me, just, let's, let me explain heaven to you. We're, I'm going to have a mansion. And a robe and a crown. I love that. That song makes me happy. Because I can tune out the words. I love that song. Upbeat, yes. It's an idea. It's not a very literal version of the joy we're going to experience. But I can experience joy through that song. Especially if Brady's here singing with us. So. Where is heaven and where should we go in the Bible? Talk about the geography of heaven. Well, it's a little bit of a trick question. And maybe not a trick question the way you thought it was a trick question. Because the correct question here, at least when we're talking about this, is when is heaven? Actually, when you say where is heaven, my question is, when heaven are you talking about? Which time frame... Do you understand? Because there just so happens to be in Scripture two. One is referred to by different names and the other is referred to by different names, but they are talked about in diff- at different times and are described in different ways. Um, and we're going to use these terms pretty uh, regularly here. 
first heaven and second heaven. Some would call this like paradise and the kingdom of heaven, or, um, you know, there's all sorts, like here in, um, in the, you know, the way Jesus talked about Hades, although that was a topic for, like, we talked about that a while back. I tackled hell before I tackled heaven. Heaven's harder. Um, but first heaven is essentially, and we're, all, all I'm doing here is just coming up with a uniform name so that I can call a thing a thing and you know what I'm talking about. I've seen books where they refer to uh, first heaven as a low, with a lowercase h and second heaven with an uppercase h. Um, but it, sometimes you hear Jesus talk about, today you will be with me in paradise. That's first heaven. First heaven is life after death. Second heaven is life after life after death. And it will make sense in a second. Because we're going to look at Scripture. But first, I want to look at the second heaven first. Because the second incarnation, incarnation of heaven, or the second version of heaven is the one that we should, that we, that we see as the ultimate promise of God. There's a fly. Didn't choose any of y'all, just chose me. The second heaven is what we talk about whenever, so if, if your answer to when, when is heaven, and you're saying, well, the one I'm talking, like when Jesus comes back, what's it going to be like? That's second heaven. First heaven is, what's it like when we die? Bible talks about both very specifically and differently and gives a defining line between one and the other. One, first heaven, starts when we die. Second heaven is a furthered version of first heaven, but with, well, let's see the nuances. First Thessalonians, they were worried. They were worried about their, uh, the people who had died. If Jesus comes back, they've died before Jesus comes back, what's going to happen to them? And he, he's comforting them and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a, with, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. We'll, we'll see in just a second which direction the Lord is coming. Like when we meet him, what happens after that? Do we go up or back down? We'll get there in a second. Uh, we'll meet him in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so you, the, the dead in Christ will rise first. Does that mean they're just sleeping right now? 
No. Notice, uh, you go back. We'll talk about this in just a second. But you'll notice in in verse 13. um, Actually, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. It's, It's hard to kind of define. But there is coming the kingdom of God in its fullness. And some have died, and they will be brought with God, and they will be um, resurrected first. Uh, you'll, you'll see similarly in Revelation chapter 21, it describes this time. This is only one of the only parts of Revelation that are future-looking, that are forward-looking. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, well, now before we get to see what he's saying. It is important to remember, and N.T. Wright points this out, there's a book, it's it's not a hard read, but it's not Max Licato either. Uh, there's a book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright um, that I think is a must read for Christians. Um, it, it examines this idea, something we have lost. The Bible, and he says in Surprised by Hope, the Bible does not end with us floating off to God. It ends with God triumphantly coming to us. Surprised by hope. Now, you may say, okay, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. New heaven, new earth. Isn't that a Jehovah's Witness thing? Well, before they had it, the Bible had it. I think it's very important to not, just because the Jehovah's Witness, say, or the J-dubs, as I like to call them, J.W., J.W., I just keep shortening. J.D. will be later. Right now, when they talk about the new heaven and the new earth, they're quoting the Bible. They get confused really quickly afterward. But this idea, just because we first heard it from the Jehovah's Witnesses, doesn't mean we can throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like parenting mistake 101. The, the Bible ends. The Revelation 21 says, In the end, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now let's look at the word new for a second. Two, type, two ways to say new in, uh, in Koine Greek. More idiom, there's probably idioms for that. But two words... Um, have two different types of meaning. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 9 to show you there's a verse in Scripture that has both of the words, okay? Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Every time the word new shows up there, 
It's, it's the new like as in younger. Like the, 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 the new version of the iPhone is the youngest version of the iPhone. Your new child, your new car is typically your youngest car. So it's, a, it's, it's a new as far as time goes. There's another Greek word for new that's translated fresh right there. The fresh wineskins. Better versions of the old. So if you restart, my first vehicle, and this might be why I'm a little spoiled, um, my first vehicle was a 1976 Ford Bronco that looked as if it had rolled right off the line in 1998. Uh, my dad bought it brand new in 1976, kept it until I was a, a 16-year-old boy, and um, re, uh, recreated it for me. Had the old Ooga horn, which you can't like get. That's maybe, maybe why I don't have road rage. You can't. You can't be mad. I'm going to make clown sounds at you. Maybe 15. But I had this... It wasn't a new Bronco, but it was fresh. It was new in its own way. It was recreated, restored. So Revelation 21 uses the same word for new. Not the word that he uses for new wine, but the word he uses for fresh wine skin. We could even say a fresh heaven and a fresh earth. For the old heaven and the old earth, the the older ways had passed away. There's two two words for earth too. And here it's using like the the actual planet. The place where we live. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus is using a different word than what the earth here he says. He, He uses a word that is talking predominantly about the system that exists in the world. The way the world works. Uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. We'll get into that some of the time. And I saw that the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. This is God celebrating what is happening. About to happen to his people. See. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. After, oh, let's, let's back up. So for the first things have passed away. He... God is celebrating God's triumphant entry into the new realm. God takes over this place. The Bible does not end with us floating off to heaven. It ends with heaven invading earth and making all things new, ruining death. It says there is no sea. That essentially means um, 
no evil. We'll, we'll talk about it later in the summer. But where is heaven? It's here. It's a recreated here. And what's crazy is like, I know that for some of you that might be like a, wait. It's one of the things the Bible is most clear about. Now, the one, of the, reason, the one of the things that gets in our way is we have a hard time making the distinction between what happens after we die and what happens when Jesus returns. And if we can kind of come up with language for that, for me, it's first heaven and second heaven. But for you, it could be something else, paradise and the kingdom of heaven, or the new heaven. And some uh, authors use the new heaven and new earth for a, a longhand version of saying heaven because heaven can be so confusing. The city, the new Jerusalem, comes. And so much so that, they, that he starts giving descriptions of it. And, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just as wide and tall and deep as it is everything else. It's just a big cube. And the gates are never closed. And they, what, gates are never closed is a way of saying we're not afraid of enemies. And there are no lights because God, there's, a, there's fruit and stuff. It is, and, and it makes complete sense. Because Genesis 3, through Revelation 19 and 20, would not be necessary. Or Genesis 4, through Revelation 20, would not be necessary without Genesis 3. The fall. The way, the way God originally wanted us is apparent. And all of Scripture, Scripture has an arc to it. It climaxes at Jesus. But it begins with God in relationship in His created earth with His creation. It begins with God, us not walking in God's garden, but God walking in ours. And all of Scripture is not just God coming up with a new way for us to be with Him, but God restoring things, putting things back to the way they were. That's what the word uh, justify in Scripture means. Setting things right. Allowing things to be put back to the way they were supposed to be. And a lot of us probably think, or at least our instinct is to think of cartoons and things we've seen on TV to picture heaven. But Garden of Eden is the best shot you've got. And it's us walking with God in the cool of the day. It, it's what God wanted. And it's what God will get. Um... I think the Bible's pretty clear about that. I, you, you can disagree with me, and that's fine. This is one of those wonderful classes that at the end you can be like, ah, I don't like it. Okay, that's fine. Um, we'll see. It's one of those things that, like, I think a lot of the, 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 the things we disagree about when we get to the, when, when Jesus comes back, 
we won't want to ask about. But this one will just sort of know when it happens. And you'll have to look at me and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I won't say it because, God, there will be no evil. But you will not harbor it in your heart either. No, but it, I mean, I, I just, I don't know how much more clear this gets. Revelation 21 specifically. Um, all right, now, what's going on right now? So, after you die. So we've addressed what happens after when Jesus comes back. What happens when you die? Okay, so my favorite verse for this is in Revelation 7. And in Revelation, uh, John is pre- predominantly speaking in the present term. Actually, he's speaking in what, uh, in the Greek language, is aorist. It's a tense where it's like a thing that happened to me, but it quit happening. And now I'm telling you about it. Um, and if I'm, am I wrong about that? That's right, right? Aristance, okay. John's a better Greek guy than I am, so uh, I think. I'm assuming. He's closer to the class than I am. Uh, and so I'll, I'll lean on him some for this sort of stuff. But most of it's told in this, this tense where he's saying, this thing happened to me and I saw it. And so it's stuff for him that's happening now. And uh, there's this passage in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 is whenever he's, the first part of Revelation 7, he's sealing the 144,000, which is an obvious metaphor for Passover and those who endured that slavery and that suffering, and God is going to come and Take, take people out. and But first, before we do that, let's seal the 144,000. There's 12,000 from every tribe of Israel before the Lamb of God saves them. And so we're, we've got this imagery of the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. And then, as we, talk, we referenced the scripture last week, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white? And where have they come from? And John says, good question. Shouldn't you know this? Actually, he says just that. Sir, he was more respectful. Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are those who have come out of the great ordeal. For, for them, the great ordeal was just Everything that had happened to them. Like their whole life was a great ordeal. And to be honest, I think your whole life is a great ordeal. Those who have come through it 
The, the, the Hebrew writer consistently talks about those who, will, we, those who will and who will not enter the rest. And also, let's point this out. A lot of times the Bible talks about, and it does in Thessalonians, it does when Jesus um, is talking about Lazarus. It talks about those who have died um, being asleep. Um, that language is less about un- them being unconscious and more about that being temporary. Their, their death is temporary. So when they talk about sleep, they're not talking about your, you, won't, you don't know what's happening. They're saying you, won't, you, don't, you don't ever stay asleep. You come up out of sleep is temporary. For them, sleep predominantly was temporary. And so if you, adding it to death was saying death to is temporary. They have gone through the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship Him day and night within the temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship Him. Oh, I'm sorry. did that again. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Verse 17. And he will guide them to the spr- to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They are, your loved ones are worshiping God. And when we worship God, we join them. They don't join us. We join them. They sing, salvation belongs to our God, who, sit, who sits on the throne. Well, apparently our internet just turned on. They sing, to him be glory and honor and thanks forever and ever. See, heaven isn't just in this, uh, just isn't to come It's happening now and will happen. So when the Bible speaks in those terms, it's not ruling one out or the other. I think it's very helpful for us to sort of make a designation and say there's a time after when Jesus comes back. And we've got we will know what that looks like. The Bible tells us about that. And there's a time right now in the heavenly realms and God has shown us what that looks like, albeit briefly through John in Revelation. So we sing with them. When we gather... Have you ever noticed that the Church of Christ doesn't have any flags? That's a, that's a, a, I didn't notice that about us. Until um, I was eating dinner one time with uh, Scott McKnight. And we were talking about the Church of Christ. Because I'm, you know, self-important. And I, he said, I love the Churches of Christ. He said, 
I find your peculiarities peculiar. But I love some things about you. One, he lists them. I think there were just three. But they were big. One, he said, I love the way you talk about baptism. I love the way y'all handle the Eucharist. And I, I said, we don't call it the Eucharist. But he, he knew, I knew what I meant. I love how you handle communion. And then he said, I love that there are no flags in your building. I said, there are no flags in our building? He said, no Church of Christ I've ever been to. But it is weird when you take your kids to the Memphis VBS and they're saying the Pledge of Allegiance before it begins. That's just odd to me. Because when we gather together, we are experiencing what it will be like with God. And when we are with God, there will be no allegiance to no country. To any country. There will be no allegiance to any country. There will be... So we are experiencing a worship. We are trying to imagine the end when we worship now. We are trying to imagine then when we worship now. Because there are people, your loved ones, your, you know, Moses is worshiping God is in God's presence. Now, worshiping God and being in God's presence are synonymous. You aren't in God's presence without worshiping God. Every time anyone comes into contact with God, specifically in the Old Testament, where do they land? On their faces. So, we sing with the saints. Who sing now? We sing with the, the glorified. So I'm going to end. There is a song with, that goes with Revelation 7. And I want to sing it with the saints in heaven. 